This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. early summer morning. I'm thinking about what the actor Steve McQueen once said. I'd rather wake up in the middle of nowhere than in any city on earth. And man, that speaks for the kind of morning I've got here. I woke up in the remotest part of northern Alaska, above the Arctic Circle in the Brooks Range, gates of the Arctic National Park, one of the all-time favorite places I've ever experienced in my life. Everywhere I look, high, rugged mountains and sheer walled valleys. Off in the distance, there's a long, broad valley with a twisting river going down the middle, winding from side to side. There are clear water lakes, and there's a great, big, beautiful lake just below me, mirror waters reflecting the ridges of mountains covered with forest on their lower slopes and tundra on the upper slopes and off to my left a rugged sheer rock face some patchy snow and these mountain walls veering down to the edge of the lake and I can see a beaver cleaving along a little V of its wake everything around this morning speaks most eloquently of the north country we've got quite a chorus of birds going on, in addition to quite a background harmony of mosquitoes that have been thrilled to see me come out here. We've got Swainson's thrushes singing in there, the yellow-rumped warbler, and the sweet high songs of the fox sparrow. Well, we're coming into an open area now with lots of reindeer lichen or reindeer moss. One of the quintessential plants of the north, an important food for the caribou that were in here this winter, making a feast out of this whitish reindeer moss that covers the ground a bit like, kind of like somebody spilled soap suds all over the place, the white color of this stuff. And a little patch of bright yellow sunflowery plants called arnica. And off over the valley here, the forest sprawling off into the far distance over the tiers of ridges and mountains. Forest everywhere you look. This is part of the immense boreal forest that covers the entire northern part of the earth in a wide evergreen band from about 50 degrees north latitude up across the Arctic Circle to the edge of the Arctic tundra stretches clear across Canada and interior Alaska and then it spans the broad vastness of Russia and northern Europe. It's like a living wreath that's wrapped around the upper part of the globe. That word boreal forest derives from Boreas, the Greek god of the north wind. It's also often called by the Russian word taiga. It covers about 11% of the land area on our entire planet. It's the world's largest 
intact forest, about 50% bigger than the Amazon rainforest. That's the scale on which you have to think about this boreal forest of the subarctic world. There's a very steep little trail going down here off the top of the ridge into thick woods down here. Oh, really steep. The boreal forest country of interior Alaska is dominated by two coniferous trees and they're all around me here as I move into fairly dense woods here. Mosquitoes are going to get a little bit denser too. Man, are they hungry this morning. Dominated by the white spruce and the black spruce. They're not easy to tell apart. The white spruce is often bigger. Now the forest, and we can see it right here as we move a little bit deeper in, is actually a mosaic. The stands of spruce here mingling with aspens and birches and poplars and thickets of tall willow and alders. There are open meadows and boggy muskegs. This spot we're in right now could be anywhere in the boreal forest all across North America. Water everywhere, literally millions of ponds and sloughs and lakes. It includes actually the boreal forest, some of the world's biggest lakes, such as Baikal over in Russia, in Canada, Great Bear Lake. The boreal forest is widely considered to be one of the most important treasures of natural heritage anywhere on earth. Now the boreal forest is also famous, or maybe I should say notorious, for the dramatic intensity of its climate. In the summertime, 24-hour daylight pouring down across the land. Didn't get dark at all last night. The sun just moving along the northern horizon behind the mountain ridges here, but it never really set, never actually went below the technical horizon. And with all this sunlight, Temperature here yesterday was up around 80, can get even higher, sometimes 90 degrees Fahrenheit. 70s, pretty ordinary in the summertime up here. Orange crowned warbler there and a classic voice of the north woods. You can hear a raven in the background. And then there's probably nowhere else on earth where the winter is so dramatically opposite from summer. All this sound around us lapses into a profound and encompassing silence in the wintertime. The days measured by a few hours of low sun here above the Arctic Circle. In fact, just twilight as the sun never comes above the horizon at all in the middle of the winter. Temperatures plunging down. I love to think about it where I'm standing now with this nice warm balmy temperature around me. This spot has seen temperatures of 50, 60, undoubtedly 70 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. And for six to seven months of the year, everything muffled and billowed with snow. Now, oh boy, there's a big pile of bear droppings here right in the middle of this trail. No surprise because this spot we're in right here is a natural highway for bears. And I'm just kind of glad that I'm talking here because if anything is coming along this wildlife highway, it's going to hear my voice, and that's probably going to be plenty to make an animal decide to move elsewhere. Unlike most of the world, there's still room here in the boreal forest for animals that have become scarce or completely vanished in many other places. Moose travel this trail. In fact, there's a 
hoof print of a big moose, maybe a bull moose that came along here. There are caribou this past winter. There were thousands of them wintering in here, right where I'm walking. The grizzly bear that signed its passage along this trail. There's the wolf and the wolverine, the lynx, the black bear. Oh, look, here's a quite a pile of moose uh, nuggets, moose droppings. Bouncing them around in my hand. I've got about six or seven of them. They're well dried out. Well, you got to be constantly alert and certainly a bit excited realizing that you might encounter one of those great animals at any moment. And while we're on the subject, look at what we've got right here. I see a bit of fur. Let me pick this up. This is caribou fur, light gray color. Oh, it's pretty darn fresh feeling and oh my goodness. Now here is something that will really get your attention. This is the remains of a caribou. I'm picking up the upper part of a femur bone, tapping it now here against a section of backbone. Ooh, stinky. Here's a big piece of caribou skin. I'm rubbing the microphone on the fur. Ooh, that doesn't smell very good either. And for a diameter of about 15 feet here, the ground is completely covered with caribou fur. Wow. Oh, and here's, I can see bits of leg bone all around here too. I don't see, there's the voice of a gray jay there in the background. I don't see the skull. This has been heavily worked over. Oh, look at here. Unmistakably here are wolf scats. And oh, here's the skull. It's interesting to imagine the scene that unfolded in this very spot where we're standing right now of wolves chasing down, finally surrounding and killing this caribou right here. Well, if you needed to think about the primal realities of life in the boreal forest, the kind of life that has gone on for millions of years all over the earth and that has vanished in so many places, there it is right there in front of us, predator and prey. Oh, here's another pile of bear droppings, big pile of them. Think about also the way humans have lived in the world for thousands of years, where you walk along realizing you're not alone at the top of the food chain, and it kind of makes your eyes dash around just in case something a lot bigger and stronger than you are happens to be coming along. Well, I've got my bear spray hanging on my belt. I wish I was listening to this on the radio instead of actually out here right now. Because <laughs> i got to be thinking about who's in the neighborhood this morning. Now, of course, it's important to remember that the boreal forest is also a homeland for many different people whose history goes back for thousands of years. And they're still here in Canada. The boreal forest country is homeland for about 600 First Nations communities. They speak many languages, iconic, beautiful names, Chipewyan, Kaska, Tuchoni, Assiniboine, Cree, Mi'kmaq, Naskapi, and here in interior Alaska, 11 native languages of the Athabascan family, including Koyukon, Gwich'in, Dena'ina, Holikachuk, Deghitan, and others. Oh, here's a 
pile of long droppings, light brown color. Um, they look a little bit like Cheetos, but quite a bit narrower than that pencil diameter. Those would be the droppings of either ptarmigan or grouse. Well, many indigenous people here in the boreal forest country still draw their livelihoods directly from the land and still follow traditions that bind them intimately with the surrounding natural world. I had a chance to learn a little bit about this when I spent some years living with Gwich'in and Koyukon Indian people here in interior Alaska, trying to record some of their knowledge of the environment, their subsistence lifeways, and spiritual traditions. This experience profoundly influenced my sense for the world and kindled my passion for this North Country. Now today, we're here on the north edge of the Koyukon Indian homeland, and I'm going to try to pass along some of the elders' teachings as I understood them while we're exploring what's around us. Now we're down here in among these big spruce trees. The white spruce tree is the dominant tree in much of the North American boreal forest. Elegant tree up to 100 feet tall and sometimes as much as 200 years old. For native people living here in the northern forest, I think that the white spruce is probably more important than any other single plant or animal species. The logs of these trees, these tall, straight spruce trees we have around us, they're wonderful for building log cabins, for making lumber that's used in boats and paddles, dog sleds, caches, all kinds of stuff. The roots are great for weaving together baskets made out of birch bark. The roots are kind of the sewing material. And the pitch, right here on this tree, amber colored. It can be used as a kind of chewing gum, the kids like it. And it's also a really good antibiotic if you put it on cuts and sores. I've used it to great success a number of times myself. The Koyukon name for the white spruce tree is Tsaba. Koyukon Indian people have a highly developed tradition of objective scientific knowledge. In Western culture, of course, empirical science is the single proper means to fully understanding the natural world. Reality in the Western tradition is what we can see, what we can touch, what we can measure. Now, Koyukon elders teach something else, something that resides beyond the studied gaze of science. In Koyukon tradition, of course, empirical reality is rich and highly developed, but it's only half the story. Everything in nature also has spirit and power and awareness. So for the traditional Koyukon Indian person, this spruce tree that I'm touching right now is aware that I'm here. It's okay to use the tree and its wood, but it's essential to recognize the tree's spiritual power and show respect toward it. Bad things can happen to a person who disrespects a tree. For example, if someone would cut this tree down for no reason at all, make no use of it, that violates the obligation you have to respect that spiritual power in the trees. Spruce trees have a very powerful spirit. It's a kind of spirit that tends to be benevolent toward humans, the elders teach. For example, camping under the boughs of a big old spruce tree like this one not only gives physical shelter, but also the spirit of this tree protects a person from harm. So the Koyukon elders teach. Now, as I'm ambling around through the woods here, this boreal forest can be surprisingly rich in 
edible plants, especially berries. There's low bush and high bush, cranberries, nagoon berries, rose hips. There's cloudberries, raspberries, currants, and crowberries. Lots of crowberry plants here. And especially, the most important of them all, blueberries. We've got them all around us here. The blueberry bushes in flower right now. They're called giga in the Koyukon language. Some years the blueberries are prolific. And the villagers then get out and pick buckets full of these delicious blueberries. Get the kids out there. We've been picking up in the background the voice of the northern raven, one of the most intelligent, and I'd have to say one of the most absolutely remarkable birds in the world. The raven's voice, the quintessential sound of the boreal forest. There they are, three of them. In Koyukon tradition, the raven is a creature of great power. The ancient godlike trickster raven called Dotsonsa in the Koyukon language created the world. And these ravens today are somehow living embodiments of that great raven. Ever since I lived with Koyukon people, I think of the raven in a completely different way, always wondering, is that just a bird as science would teach, or is it a sacred and powerful thing as Koyukon elders teach? I don't know the answer. I love the question. Also where I am right now, a whole set of moose tracks here. There's always a moose somewhere nearby. It's the biggest animal in the northern forest. Bull moose can reach more than seven feet tall. That's at the shoulder. They can weigh up to a thousand pounds or even more. Even the northern grizzly isn't nearly as large. They're a formidable animal. There's about 150,000 moose in Alaska and roughly a million, the biologists say, in North America today. Most of them live in the boreal forest country. It's a very important source of meat, the moose, for northern residents from the small villages up to the cities like Fairbanks here in Alaska, Whitehorse over in the Yukon Territory. Now the Koyukon Indian people, they're experts at tracking and finding and stalking moose. The meat of the moose is a staple food in Koyukon villages. It's eaten frozen, dried, roasted over the campfire, made into a tasty stew, and there are delicacies like moosehead soup. Moose hide, used for winter boots, for fancy mitts, for jackets. Koyukon hunters know that when they're hunting the moose, they're dealing not just with an animal, but also with a spiritual being. And so the hunter's success depends on showing respect. It's just as important as the hunter's knowledge and skill. The elders will often say, for example, don't talk openly about your plans to go and hunt moose. Say something obtuse, like, I think I'll go out and look around for a moose track. Because the animal has the power to hear and understand from afar. Never brag about hunting. It offends the animal so a person can lose their luck. Meat of an animal like the moose is literally a sacred substance for traditional Koyukon people. It's to be kept clean, treated with respect, and very importantly, never wasted. These are such valuable lessons, I think, for anyone. Now, here's another bear scat. Good chance that that's grizzly bear. Always a chance for an unexpected encounter, of course, especially on a bear highway like this one. Alaska has a lot of grizzlies, about 30,000 of them. That's 98% of the total United States population of grizzly bears. 
Besides their physical power and their temperamental nature, Koyukon elders say that the grizzly bear has an extraordinarily powerful spirit. One man told me the grizzly bear is filled with so much power and energy, he said that's why it can't keep still, can't hold its temper. Too much spiritual power, he was talking about. People even avoid saying the actual name of this animal, and instead they'll use circumlocutions like Dlistabahulani, which means the one who lives in the mountains. And then, of course, here, as we saw just down the hill at that caribou kill, there's the ultimate symbol of the American wild. That, of course, is the wolf. For many people, just the chance to hear a chorus of howling wolves would rank among the greatest experiences of their lives. Now, perhaps not everyone remembers that the wolf was originally widespread all across Europe, across Asia, across North America, one of the most widely distributed animals anywhere in the world. Now, the wolf only occupies a fraction of its original range. The stronghold today, right here, the boreal forest of North America. About 6,000 to 8,000 wolves here in Alaska, and 50,000 to 60,000 in Canada. Wolves are still hunted and trapped throughout the North. Village people sell their hides for cash. They use them to make mittens, boots, parkas. They're especially important for parka ruffs around your face because the wolf fur sheds frost very easily. You can just brush it with your hand and the frost from your breath will come off. There goes that beautiful Swainson's thrush singing again. It seems like the most spectacular things are usually rare, but the Swainson's thrush, boy, does it ever break that rule. This glorious voice is among the most common sounds of early summer in the boreal forest. The bird, I can see it perched in the top of a spruce tree here, slightly smaller than a robin, about the same shape. It's actually closely related to the robin. Russet brown color with a spotted belly. That's the Swainson's thrush. Its Koyukon name is Kozak. Koyukon elders say it's singing words in their language. It goes, Tsukiyestiyo. It's a fine evening, at least loosely translated. It would be hard not to fall in love with the sound of the Swainson's thrush, although Koyukon elders say they're also a bit spooky because the thrush can sense things that lurk somewhere nearby, maybe dangerous things. When a lot of Swainson's thrushes sing in the evening, it can mean Inna is around. That's the woodsman, sort of like the boreal forest version of the Bigfoot. Now we're hearing lots of other bird songs around us. There's the yellow-rumped warbler in there, the Wilson's warbler. Occasionally, we're also hearing bohemian waxwings. Most of those birds come here only for the summertime. Only a few kinds of birds stay here year-round in the North Country. The ravens, the gray jays, chickadees, red poles, ptarmigan. But there are about 200 species of birds that migrate up here to the boreal forest every summer to mate and raise their young. That's what these beautiful singers are doing right now. Well, the numbers of nesting birds here in the North American boreal forest utterly defy comprehension. I mean that literally. Up to a billion sparrows and two billion warblers every summer, plus thrushes, woodpeckers, swallows, gulls, 
hawks, eagles, about 40% of North America's waterfowl, the ducks, the geese, swans, loons, about a third of all the shorebirds, sandpipers, plovers, many other names. So the boreal forest is the bird factory for North America. Well, there's a lot of concern for keeping that bird factory in operation. Many changes happening in the boreal forest of the world, including here in Alaska and in Canada. Oil and gas development, of course, mining, hydroelectric development, all expanding northward. Also, about two and a half million acres of boreal forest are being cut down every year, mostly for paper and other kind of ephemeral products. Other challenges are also emerging, notably the warming and drying of the climate. Since the 1960s, the acres of boreal forest burned in wildfires each year has doubled as the climate gets drier. The lakes and the wetlands drying out with climate change, waterfowl habitat shrinking. Incidentally, right now we're also hearing another iconic voice of the boreal forest. That's a gray jay there. Well, apart from its role as the bird factory for the northern hemisphere, scientists are saying today that the boreal forest is even more important for its role in moderating climate change. Now, let me try to explain that. The main cause of global warming, according to atmospheric scientists, is increasing amounts of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere. And a major source of that carbon dioxide, decomposition. The cold northern climate here in the subarctic slows decomposition. So vast amounts of plant material have accumulated here on the forest floor. So right here, down under my feet, this deep moss, and as I walk along, I can feel old tree trunks down here under the moss. Oh my goodness, here's that missing jawbone from that caribou kill back there carried down the trail to this spot. I'm going to walk back toward the kill itself right now. All this stuff slowly decomposing in the cold climate. So vast amounts of plant material accumulated on the forest floor. This is called carbon sequestration. The boreal forest is storing more carbon than any other terrestrial ecosystem on Earth. So it has a major buffering effect then on the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Many scientists conclude that this phenomenon of carbon sequestration in the boreal forest is an important reason to limit cutting of this forest and to try to control the growing amount of wildfire here, to keep this forest intact, to continue in the fullest possible way its role in helping us to moderate global warming. Heading back toward the ridge to get out of these mosquitoes before I've been drained of all my blood. Well, as I look out across the lake here this morning, as I look along the mountains and ridges, as I see the forest sprawling off into the distance, I think if our children should ask us, what did the world look like before there were cities and suburbs, before the farms and fences, before the highways and the airports? What was the original creation like? Well, maybe instead of trying to explain it to them, 
we could bring them to the boreal forest. And in a place like this one, deep in the Brooks Range of Northern Alaska, we could show them the answer while these wild voices sing to them like God's own chorus. Well, for Encounters, I'm Richard Nelson. I want to thank you so much for your good company. I also want to say a very special word of thanks to Steve and Kay Grubas. And thanks to all these creatures around us for the privilege of savoring their company here in the boreal forest of Alaska. I'll see you next time. Encounters is a production of the Island Institute and KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. This program was written and narrated by Richard Nelson, edited and produced by Lisa Bush, special consulting from Ken Fate, theme music by Outback. Encounters is funded by the National Science Foundation and by the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, the North Pacific Research Board, and Robert Osborne, Jerry Tone, Martha Wyckoff, and Sue Cohn. For more information about the show and to hear podcasts, go to EncountersNorth.org.